The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and 107.7 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, there's many, many things going on in technology. Now, the big issue now is social media. Mm -hmm. Are they trying to tip the balance in the election? They create an echo bubble, and we're going to talk about how to break out of that echo bubble (laughs) so you aren't manipulated by them so easily. Now, this week, we're going to feature one of the founders of the Internet, Robert William Taylor. He's one of the visionaries who actually funded some of the initial Internet work. He also was director of uh, the research center at at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, PARC, which was instrumental in developing so many technologies we have today, the graphical user interface, the laser jet and many, many, uh, Ethernet, Ethernet, local area networking. This was a man who was at the center of it all. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from one of our regular listeners, Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim and the phenomenal Mr. Big Voice. What does he do deserve this praise? I have no idea. I Listen, I'm thinking Mr. Big Voice may be paying him off. Little payola. He's too cheap for that. Come on, you know that. <laughs> he probably is. I listened intently till the very end. Now, during lockdown, I've been doing quite a bit of web surfing, and I, I ran across this Australian website about uh, various types of electronic critters, as they say. <laughs> Here's a 1952 article about Claude Shannon's robotic mouse. The show keeps getting better all the time. Best, Bob in Maryland. Well, actually, Bob, that uh, article on Claude Shannon's robotic mouse was very interesting. He would put this mouse in a cage. It was connected to a computer. And then the mouse would go around the maze and learn the maze. And And once he learned the maze, he could go through the maze in about 10 to 15 seconds. And if they would change the maze, he would be able to go back and just relearn and relearn the areas that were changed. Now, the computer that ran it was actually a mechanical computer using relays, the same kind of relays that they had for uh, long distance telecommunications, because you see, Claude Shannon worked for AT&T Bell Labs. And so he created this mechanical computer that actually could implement machine learning. So that was the first instance, I think, of machine learning using a mechanical computer back in 1952. That was a fun, fun article to read. 
Well, we got an email from Ken in St. Louis. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a laptop that only has two USB 3.0 ports. Now, I use one for my external hard drive and one for my printer. Now, I've been looking for a good Bluetooth mouse since they don't need to be plugged into a USB port. You know, I don't have an extra one. Now, I tried three different Bluetooth mice, and they all were so small that when I would try to work for a long period of time, my hand would cramp. Do you know of a mouse that's larger? Well, Ken, um, most Bluetooth mice are made smaller because they're used for laptops, and people want to carry them around in their, you know, their laptop container. So almost all the Bluetooth mice are laptop-specific, and they're small because they want to be portable, easily portable. Now, there are a few full-size Bluetooth mice available on the market. Now, one is uh, that I, that looks pretty good. It's only $14.99. It's TechNet 2600 DPI. That's dots per inch. That's the resolution as you scan it. TechNet 2600 DPI Bluetooth mouse. It's $14.99 on Amazon. It's almost full-size, so that may fit your needs. However, I mean, I'd recommend another option. Uh, you could get a USB-powered hub where you just plug that into one of your USB ports and then you could get, uh, you know, multiple ports on the hub. I've got a hub on my laptop because my laptop also only has two USB ports and I've got one USB port used for the, uh, I need it for the, uh, for the microphone for streaming Tech Talk radio. And then I've got, uh, uh, you know, and then I've, I, I use another one, another port, for an external Wi-Fi antenna so I can get great connectivity to my router no matter where I'm sitting in the house so I can stream the show easily. And then, uh, and I need a third port. So I've got a USB hub, which works perfectly. It's very small. It's powered by the laptop. I got the Sabrent four-port USB hub. It's only $9.99 on Amazon. And that has solved all my problems. Now you also have another option. You could get a you could get a Wi-Fi printer, and you could connect your printer via Wi-Fi instead of USB port. But that would require, of course, you know that you get a new printer, or you could get a Wi-Fi attachment for your printer and plug it into your printer. So you got a number of options here, and uh, I think one of them is going to work for you just perfectly. We got an email from Cheryl in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I started dating a guy a few months ago, and uh -oh. he had the annoying habit of picking up my phone and looking at all my calls. I didn't like him spying on me, yeah. so I finally put a pin on my phone so we wouldn't be, be able to get into it. But now we broke up. I don't need the pin anymore, and I can't remove it. No, you I need the to... pin. She needs the pin. She need, I, I, you know, you exact, you, you are on top of it, Jim. She does need the pin, but she thinks she wants to get rid of it because she doesn't have her boyfriend around Talk her anymore. out of it, Doc. I'm going to try to. Okay, first of all, I'll tell her how she can get rid of the pin, and I'll try to talk her out of it. Now, with Android pins, this is a fairly common problem to try to, uh, to try to remove the pin because when you go to the remove the pin area, it's grayed out and you can't do it. Now, there are a couple of reasons why this could have happened. First of all, you need to turn off encryption. If encryption is turned on, it forces you to have a pin. And if and so if you've got encryption turned on, you cannot delete the pin. 
So you need to go in there and turn off encryption if it's on, and then you can delete the pin. Now, that's probably not your problem, though, because you didn't mention anything about turning on encryption. Now, a second reason that the pin could not be unlocked, uh, removed, is that you set up a VPN, a virtual private network. Many of the VPNs require that you have a pin in place before they will install and activate on your phone. So if you've installed a VPN, you cannot remove the pin until you disable the VPN. That could be a problem. The third thing that could happen, you could have downloaded a security certificate that requires a pin. And you can't delete the pin until you delete the security certificate. So if you want to delete that security certificate, you can go to settings on your Android phone, tap down to security, tap on advanced, tap on encryption and credentials, and then clear all the credentials. If you've done all those things, you should be able to clear the pin. On the other hand, I don't think you should clear your pin, just as Jim said. Attaboy. Suppose you, you lose it. your phone or it's stolen. You don't want people making phone calls and getting at it in all your stuff. Or maybe she meets I, another guy who's just as nosy as the last one. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe <laughs> somebody in the family's just as nosy and right. they want to find out what's going on. You need a pin. So leave your pin in place, but just be clear to your just clear out your mind that you can remove the pin if you take the appropriate action. We got an email from Robert Tyler. Dear Dr. Schertz, I've been reading about hacker groups that attack companies and websites, and in some cases, internet systems via distributed denial of service attacks, DDOS. Now, my question is not about distributed denial of service attacks, but what do IT departments have to do to strengthen their infrastructure against such attacks? Because there must be something they can do to protect themselves. Thanks for a great podcast. You and your team produce every week. I've learned so much over the past few years. I hope to. I hope you realize what a quality podcast it is. Robert Tyler. Well, thanks for the compliment, Robert. Well, distributed denial of service or tax. What? What they? Uh, I'll explain what they are first. Uh, there will be a. A uh, somebody is a malicious person or team is going to take over a lot of computers over the internet. They might take over webcams, anything, any of the internet of things, devices. And then what they'll do, if they want to take down a site, they will send out a command to all of these thousands of computers they've taken over, and they say, we want you to start sending a stream of packets to this one IP address. And then what happens is that one IP address is overwhelmed with traffic and they're unable to service their normal clients. So it's a, it's a distributed denial of service attack, DDoS. Now, and those are hard to handle. Now, for one thing, you have to monitor what's going on. And, you've, and if you detect the DDoS attack, you have to immediately ask upstream providers to configure routers to incoming data stream. Now, you might also want to use IP Anycast to distribute the load. Now, IP Anycast is an internet standard that enables global mirroring of critical resources. So if one of your resources is down because of too much traffic, you simply can mirror it and you can have multiple servers providing access for your clients. 
with IP Anycast. This can also help during DDoS by distributed denial of service attacks by spreading the unwanted load between multiple sites based on the network topology. So there are ways to fight a distributed denial of service attack, and your IT department should configure it. Also, there are many internet service providers that offer this as a service, particularly in high-profile websites that are always being hit. We got an email from Lauren. Dear Tech Talk, I own an all-in-one fax copy print scanner, and it worked great for many years. And I've got a voiceover. Uh, now, I recently got a voiceover IP service, a new one. I used to have Vonage. I could send faxes without a problem. I never had to do any adjustments to the fax settings. Now, with my new service, I'm having trouble. My new service is NetTalk. Now, <clears throat> okay, they told me if I want to do faxes uh, that I can, but I've got to set the baud rate to 9600, which I did. They told me that I had to change the error correction mode to off, which I did. But it's still not working. Please help me. Uh, the tech support at NetTalk seems very limited. Thanks, Lauren. Well, um, Voice over IP has a, con has a compression algorithm that interferes with faxing. In order, like for instance, I've got UMA, which is a voice over IP system, and I, I within UMA, I got an extra number for faxing, uh, which I have to say I never use anymore because nobody uses it, but I do have it. And when I first set up my UMA <clears throat> faxing, my voice over IP faxer through UMing, UMA, I discovered it would not work because the UMA voice over IP has compression where they compress the signal before they send it. If you're doing any kind of compression, faxing will not work. So with UMA, <clears throat> I had to turn off the compression before I could send a fax. In my case, I turn off compression by simply hitting star 99 before I, as a prefix to the phone number. And I've hit star 99 as a prefix to the phone number, compression is turned off and faxing worked perfectly. So I'm thinking that may be your problem, compression, you need to turn that off. So, um, you know, so I think that if you, if you adjust that, you in fact may be able to get a little success. Oh, by the way, I went to the NetTalk webpage and at the bottom of the page, they say, faxing is a best, best effort only because of voice over IP technology. So I think you want to get somebody at NetTech who can help you a little bit more. Find out how to turn off compression. We got an email from Ken in Maryland. Dear Dr. Schertz, I'm amazed at how much information you pack into your summary each week on the email and forum questions webpage. It's usually yeah, overflowing. Yeah. Do you have some type of program that takes what you say on the show and converts it to words in a nice outline format. I can't believe you do this all this manually. Anyway, a great show, and I listen to it every week. Well, thanks for the feedback, Ken. No, we got no automation here. We just got some very fast scribes, and that's and we just take care of it every week. Um, don't you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays to put the show together? I certainly do. Isn't it fueled by white wine? Yeah, white wine. Well, actually, white wine before 4 a.m., and Bloody Mary's after 4 a.m. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my <laughs> <Not> goodness. <laughs> I had no really. idea. Well, that's why the show is so good, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect comeback. <laughs>
We got an email from Beverly. Doc, I'm having problems opening files created on a Mac on my PC. What's the problem? The files are unreadable. Thanks, Beverly. Well, this gets to a difference between Microsoft Windows and Macintosh operating system. Microsoft uses a file extension for program association. Like if it's a if it's a Word document, it'll be dot the end dot docx, or or if it's a PDF, it'll be dot pdf. Apple doesn't use extensions. It stores the program association as metadata with the file name. So Mac users, if they just take a file name and there's no extension on it, and they try to open it in a PC, the PC may choose the wrong program, you know, to, to open it with. And so when you bring it into a PC, the PC is going to say, I, I don't know what, I don't know how to open this. What should I use? And if the user picks the wrong program to open the file, it's just going to look like gibberish. So I suspect that's what's happening. Now you can also fix the problem. If you know the file extension that it should be in Microsoft Windows, simply rename the file and put dot and then the extension, and then Windows will open it up correctly every time. We got an email from Betty in Oakton. Dear Doc and Jim, my Gmail account was recently compromised. Now I was able to recover access to it, and I changed my password. But is changing the password enough? What else should I do? Love the show, Betty. That's a very good question. Yeah, well, Betty, if someone's got access to your account, they have access to everything related to the account. And that includes all the things that are used to reset the password or recover the account. For instance, Gmail has an alternate email address. They could have changed that. So they could go back in, and even though you changed the password, they could use the alternate email address to reset the password. That's a good point. Now, now some sites have challenge questions like, what's your mother's maiden name? They might have changed those questions. So those challenge questions, which are used to reset the password, would be available to them, but not you. And also, many times people use a cell phone to reset their password, and they simply get a text message. They could have changed the cell phone number that's associated with your account. So make certain that nothing has been changed in the reset parameters. You know, your, your, you know, your challenge questions, your cell phone, or your altered email address. Now, finally, I would implement two-factor authentication. And then you know that they're not gonna steal your account because you'll get a text message whenever they try to do that, and they won't get the text message, so they won't have the second factor to authenticate the account. Well, best of luck, Betty, getting your Gmail account secure. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1039 FM HD 2, 1077 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. technology it's tech talk radio it trends software the internet and it careers more of tech talk radio presented by stratford university coming up in a moment
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Robert William Taylor. He's best known as an internet pioneer, founder of the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, and founder of the DEC Systems Research Center. That's Digital Equipment Corporation Research Center. Now, Robert Taylor, he was one of these interesting guys. He was a visionary who could assemble the right team and set the right goals to make big things happen. But he could not program. He could not do any electronics. He couldn't do any of the work himself. Many people said that he's like a pianist who can hear the music, know what music should be played, but he has no fingers to play it. He's a lot like Steve Jobs at <laughs> Apple. Steve was a big visionary, but he actually never wrote any code, and he never created any circuits. Now, Robert Taylor was born February 10th, 1932 in Dallas, Texas. Now, his father, his father and mother adopted him. His father was a Methodist minister, and the family spent all their time going from one parish to another to another parish. I guess his dad didn't hang around very long. So he was what they call an itinerant minister. And he moved from parish to parish. <laughs> I've never heard that term before. Itinerant minister. Yeah, I've heard that's, itinerant that's what, farmer. <laughs> What, itinerant farmer. It's like yeah, one I've of those heard. preachers who does the tent revivals, maybe. That's right. Well, the thing is, I may, you know, I guess he couldn't hang around long enough to to stay. I don't know what the what the reason was, but this there probably man, was, it was a very reason. hard for Robert <laughs> to actually go to elementary school and high school because his parents were always moving, moving, moving. So they homeschooled him. And so they figure, uh, you know, I mean, and, and when you're homeschooled. You can graduate whenever you feel like it, I guess. I don't know. So so at, at 16, his parents decided he had graduated from high school. So he enrolled You've in Southern Methodist. You've learned enough. You can leave now. Southern Methodist University at age 16. Now. Well, if he could pass the, uh, the entrance exam, I guess he did okay, right? He could get in. Okay, so what's going to happen? You have a, a young boy. He's only 16. He's been living with a minister his whole life, following the straight and narrow. 
He goes off to college and he's on his own. What do you think happens? He went off the rails. He, did he went go off the off reservation. The he didn't study. He, he, he did all of this intramural sports. He played basketball. Well, he played football. Okay. He played sports. He had a ball at Southern Methodist University. He did everything except study. I thought you were thinking like booze and lampshades on head and, you know, co-eds. Oh, no, no, he wasn't. The, he went He went off the rails in a different direction. I see. Okay, Jim, that's the way you went off the rails. <laughs> now, Actually, it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I spent so, my life at a radio station. That's how I went off the rails. Yeah, that's uh, that would be. Let's see where that got me. <laughs> Probably not your your dream job that your parents had set up set out for you. I think they just wanted to be out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> now, so what happened was in 1952, after school wasn't going so well because he actually wasn't studying, he decided to join the U.S. Naval Reserves. We were in the midst of the Korean War, so he joined the reserves. And he, you know, wanted to participate in the defense of the country and also get out of school. <laughs> he stayed in the Naval Reserves for two years. And and you know what? As you know, they always say this about the military, it straightens people out. He sort of got his act together. So in 1954, he re-enrolled in college, this time at University of Texas in Austin. He didn't go back to SMU. Wait, well... You know why he went to SMU initially? His father was a, a Methodist, Methodist minister. minister. Right. So he went to Southern Methodist University. I mean, that makes perfect sense. He went for but the when re he religion and left for the beer. That's right. But when he went back to, back to school, he went to UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, under the GI Bill. Hmm. Now, he went back there, and he was just, he said, he's a professional student. He didn't really, really care so much about he just took whatever class interested him. He was like taking classes in math and philosophy and English, religion, all over the place. And he was just actually enjoying going to school and studying. He took courses for pleasure. Now, finally, he got enough classes collected in one area that he could get a bachelor's degree. And he ended up getting a, a bachelor's degree in experimental psychology. I guess he took a lot of psychology classes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he went on, <clears throat> he decided to go to graduate school. So he stayed there at UT Austin and he got a master's degree in psychology. Now, while he was doing in psychology, he was more attracted to the hard science. So he, he was doing research in neuroscience as a, a, in his, on his master's degree, neuroscience in psychoacoustics, how sound affects the nervous system and how it affects the auditory nervous system. He was very interested in the science of the neuroscience of psychoacoustics and how man interacts with sound and other things about him. Now, his, his advisor wanted him to get a PhD, but he would have to go take, an, take a boatload of psychology classes that he just wasn't interested in. He thought most of the psychology classes were soft science and just psychobabble. He wasn't interested in them, so and they were going to make him take those classes. So he decided, no, nah, nah, I don't want a PhD. I'm just going to leave school without a PhD. I'm quite happy with what I've learned. So he left school. By the way, while he was in school, he got married, and he decided to teach math, and to pick up some extra bucks on the side, he coached 
basketball. Now, he worked there coaching basketball and teaching math at the Howie Academy. It was a co-ed prep school in Florida. And so he was down there, and I guess Florida's a nice place to live. But what happened was his wife, you know, he had a second child along the way. And his wife said, you know, Robert, your salary here at the prep school really is going to pay for two kids and a house. You've really got to up the ante here a little bit. So he decided he better get another job, a different job. So he took an engineering job with aircraft companies uh, because he, he was good at math so he, and he could earn more money. So he had one job with Martin Marietta, and he, was, uh, he helped design the uh, Pershing missile as a senior systems engineer. But what happened was he was really interested in the man-computer interface. This goes back to his, his psychoanalytics, his psychoacoustics. So he's really interested, particularly in, uh, in, in, in aircraft, how the pilot interacts with the machine. So he wrote a proposal for a flight control simulation display that would make it easier for the pilot to interact with the flight system. And uh, that proposal was sent in to you know, headquarters, and somebody at uh, NASA saw that proposal, somebody at the Office of Advanced Research and Technology, and they offered him a job huh. to come and work for NASA in Washington, D.C., in the Advanced Research and Technology area, because this was just about the time when people were trying to figure out how to make computers more usable. 1962. This was a long time ago. Yeah. This that we were having all back then we were having all batch processing, big mainframes and the idea of an interactive computer was sort of like twilight zone. Now, he he started working at NASA and he became acquainted with a guy by by the name of Douglas Engelbart. Now Douglas Engelbart was at Stanford Research Institute. And he was the man who actually used a computer mouse to manipulate a graphical user interface. Now, we all are so familiar with that now. But back then, that was cutting-edge research. This was before the Mac and before Windows. Up to that time, you, just, you would just deal text. You would type in text, and you would and you would deal with some sort of shell and would execute your text commands. So the idea of interacting with a graphical user interface with, with a mouse and clicking on it was really quite astronomical. So he became familiar with Douglas Engelbart. And Engelbart um, had this huge demonstration, and this was like this big demo where he demonstrated the graphical user interface. And it was like, the biggest demonstration of computer technology that they'd ever seen. Uh, we featured Engelbart, by the way, previously on on uh, on Tech Talk. We have. Now you have. Now as I have. Now as part of his work with Engelbart, he ended up meeting another guy who was actually a manager at the Advanced Research Project Agency. His name was Jay Licklider. His last name was Licklider, and his initials were JCR. So he went by J.C.R. Licklider, but everybody just called him Lick because that was just easy. <laughs> they just <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, so he was he was so he met Lick, and now Lick 
worked at the Advanced Research Project Agency, and he was in a newly formed office called the Information Processing Tec Techniques Office. Information Processing Techniques Office. It's called IPTO, I-P-T-O. And uh, it turned out that Lick had done graduate work in psychoacoustics, the same thing that Taylor had done. And in 1960, he wrote an article about the man-machine symbiosis, how you could bring men and machine together. And Taylor read Lick's paper, Licklider's paper, and these two guys just hit it off hmm. because they both, they were non-computer geeks, they were psychologists, and they were trying to figure out how to bridge the man-machine connection. I mean, it's interesting how, how you have to have multiple disciplines contribute to major breakthroughs. So in 1965, Taylor moved from NASA to the Advanced Research Project Agency. And his, his goal was to fund major projects at, uh, at, uh, corp at, uh, at, at corporate research centers and at universities. Now, one of the first projects he had at ARPA, Advanced Research Project Agency, was supporting time sharing. We've talked a lot about that. So he would have a terminal, and you could log into the terminal remotely, and you could do time sharing on that one terminal. Well, in his office, he had a time his, He managed a time sharing project at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So he had a terminal for MIT, and he would talk to their computer. He managed a time-sharing project at U University of California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley. He had another terminal for UC Berkeley. And then he had a third terminal for the System Development Corporation that was out there in San Francisco. So he had three time-sharing contracts and three terminals. And each system was totally separate. The users would never interact with each other from one community to another. Taylor wanted to build a network that would allow him to operate and connect with all three of his time-sharing computers with one terminal. And that was the genesis idea of the internet, uh, what was initially the ARPANET. He wanted to link everything together. Now, by June of 1966, Taylor had been so visionary that he, was, he became director of, the, of IPTO, this was, the, this was the office that Licklider had been running when he came there, and that Licklider left, and he took it over. And so he started the ARP, ARPANEC project, and he marshaled it through the systems for, uh, you know, until 1969. Now, one thing that he did, there was no money for this ARPANET project, so he managed to, to get a million dollars from the Ballistic Missile Research Program transferred to his department, and he used that million dollars to launch the original ARPANET. Now, the first thing he did when he got the money, he hired Larry Roberts from MIT Lincoln Labs as the first program manager. Licklider, even though he wasn't there, continued to provide some overall guidance because Licklider was also a visionary. Now, in 1967, there was a, a pivotal paper done by Donald Davies where they presented, the, this guy's from England, they presented their ideas regarding packet switching. And, uh, and they suggested that packet switching should be used for the ARPANET. Now this is, uh, packet switching was a revolutionary idea 
Before packet switching, we had something called circuit switching. You remember the old long-distance calls? Like if you call from Virginia to California, mm -hmm. the uh, AT&T would set up all these switches, and you would have a direct connection, hardwired connection, from Virginia all the way to California, yeah. and you would secure that circuit, and then you'd make your phone call over the circuit. Well, that was expensive because you yes. had that dedicated circuit just for one phone call. Yep. yep. And there was a lot of dead time in the phone call. And so, but so the connection was made at the circuit level for circuit switching. Now the telcos loved this because they sold minutes on circuit minutes. And then the computer guys came on and said, wait a minute here. We don't have to have a dedicated circuit. We can just send packets of information across a network at the other end, it could be reassembled into a conversation, and then we don't even need a circuit. Well, the telcos hated this, and so there was pushback from the telcos, but it, it's the thing that allowed us to cut down the cost. Now that's why long-distance phone calls don't cost you anything, right? because it's all, it's all circuit switching. And, so in and it doesn't matter what area code you have, because most people don't. I mean, you do it on a cell phone now. It just, it just doesn't matter at all. That's right. Yeah. So based on the, the Donald Davies uh, idea of, uh, of packet switching and then the, the vision that we wanted to, you know, unify all the ARPA Advanced Research Project Agency networks, uh, uh, he issued an RFQ request for quotation to build a system that could do that. And it was awarded to BBN, Bolt, Berenick, and Newman. <clears throat> These were the, this was the founding company on the, on the core internet. By 1968, Licklider and Taylor published a paper, The Computer as a Communication Device. The article laid out the future and what the internet would eventually become. <clears throat> they said in that article, expect that people are going to be communicate so easily with this network that is going to transform the world. That was a prophetic paper. And that was the and that laid out the framework for everything they would do. By 1969, the project was so successful <clears throat> that, Lick, that uh, Taylor was ready to move on. Uh, so he decided to, uh, you know, continue his research elsewhere. You see the way the Advanced Research Project Agency works. They bring in project managers for like three years. And those project managers are tasked with actually pushing some major technology initiative. Then typically, when the project leader finishes that project, or if it's successful, he moves on. Sometimes the project takes longer to complete, <clears throat> and he'll stay for another three years. So Licklider, I mean, so Taylor had done his, uh, done his duty there at DARPA, so he left. And he went on to, uh, because he's, he was interested, very interested in this computer-human interface, so he took a job at University of Utah working on computer graphics <clears throat> because he thought computer graphics, of course, are the key to this interaction between humans and computers. In 1970, he was hired by Xerox. Xerox was setting up a, the Palo Alto Research Center, PARC, P-A-R-C, and, uh, and they wanted to have a man who was a visionary lead it. So they brought Taylor out in 1970, and they wanted to focus on developing technology that, technologies that would go beyond the ARPANET at the time. 
And Taylor put together an unbelievable team of people and he set a vision to create technologies that would forever change the world. I mean, they created at Park, Palo Alto Research Center, they created the personal computer. They created Ethernet. <clears throat> Ethernet was developed there. They created laser printers there. The whole idea of a graphical user interface and WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. <clears throat> they created things that we do use now, they created from scratch out there under Taylor's leadership. I mean, to tell you how instrumental it was, I mean, Steve Jobs went out there to park. He saw the graphical user interface in the mouse. He stole all their ideas and went back to Apple and created the Macintosh based on what he'd seen at Park, and he hired a lot of the Park people. The uh, the original laser jet uh, that that would actually you would see a picture on your screen and you could print it. That WYSIWYG, that was using the technologies there. Adobe, Adobe Systems that created all of this WYSIWYG systems. Uh, they they took technology from Park. So things that we use every day today came out of that Palo Alto Research Center, and Taylor was the orchestra conductor that brought together the team and set out the vision. Really quite interesting. Well, then the problem at Xerox, they had all this great technology and the, the corporate people at Xerox, they said, oh, we're just a copier company. They didn't ever use it. They didn't want to use it. So, and they, they were pulling his budget. <clears throat> so he decided to leave. And he was hired by Ken Olson, who was from DEC, DEC Computer Equipment Systems. And Taylor then was asked to set up the Systems Research Center, Center in Palo Alto for Digital Equipment Corporation. So it was just down the street from, uh, from Park. And so he set up DEC's Research Center. And at that research center, he oversaw the development of electronic books, modern workstations, as well as a precursor to what we now know is the Java programming language. So this is a guy who was a technology conductor who was always seemed to be at the center of what was happening during these formative years of computer science, the internet and networking. Now Taylor received the National Medal of Technology and Innovation for Visionary Leadership in 1999. In 2000, he voiced two concerns about the future of the internet. He was afraid of control and access. He thought it would be controlled by governments, un unfortunately, and that access may be limited because you've got to pay for it. And he was, and he felt the internet was a gift that should be given to the world. So he was worried about it even back in 2000. In April 13th, 2017, he died at his home in Woodside, California. He suffered from Parkinson's and other health problems. So there you go. One of our visionaries in the internet hall of fame roger william taylor that's it so uh stay tuned we're going to play the pop quiz coming up here in just a minute this is tech talk radio if it's technology it's tech talk radio it trends software the internet and it careers more of tech talk radio presented by stratford university coming up in a moment
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you. I just love this virtual applause. It is fantastic. Yeah, and they're seated, so let's get on with it. <laughs> let's get on with it. Okay, earlier in the show, we talked about Robert William Taylor. Of course, he's an internet pioneer. And he was going to school and getting a degree in psychology. When he got out of school, though, he didn't know quite what he was going to do. And he got a job teaching math and also coaching a particular sport. What sport did he coach after he got his master's degree in psychology? To the big prizes or just lunch. <laughs> if you're calling from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If your jet ski is beached on a mound of oyster shells in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're Xeroxing something in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized using UV light. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Hi, that's you. Okay, very good. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about observations from the bunker, I think. Are we going to do that? No, no, we're no, not going to do that uh, now. Do something short. We'll take a call, then we'll come we're back with observations. We're going to do the clever idea of the week. Yes. This is something I never realized. Have you ever seen milk jugs in the in the grocery store, there are these plastic milk drugs, and there will be a circle which is inverted on the side. It's an in, it's an indented circle on the yes, side yes, of the Yes, 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 I know what you mean, yeah, you, yeah. Have you seen that? Yes. Well, this serves a very important purpose. It keeps the milk jug from exploding. Oh! Versus if you drop the milk jug on the floor and the, the squishes, that thing will expand out and it will keep the milk jug from breaking open when it hits the ground. No kidding. I did not know that. Or else when milk is uh, begins to go sour, it, it sort of emits a gas. Yep. And 
and then you'll build up pressure in the milk jug. But if you've got that inverted circle, it keeps it from exploding in your refrigerator. So that, actually, I had no idea about that. And I've gone back and looked at all my milk jugs, and they all have that indented circle. I and Yeah. That's... And in fact, you, you can put a milk jug in the freezer and freeze the milk, and because of that indented circle, it won't explode in the freezer. That's I had no idea. I you know I figured it also had something to do with maybe you know you could see when they popped out it was starting to get you know. Bad. That's another thing. Yeah, when that pops out. Yeah. I know, so I know there you go. That likes, is the clever idea of the week. I know somebody who likes to make their own <laughs> buttermilk, but oh. that's for, that's that's for off. You know, that's another day. Anyway, we've got somebody who'd like to play the pop quiz. Let us go to line one, and we're going to talk to Mitchell. Mitchell, how you doing there? Whoops, Mitchell. That. Ah. There we go, Mitchell. Why is the phone not working, Mitch? Mitchell, are you, are you there? Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we can hear okay, you. We're good. in the show talking about Robert William Taylor, pioneer of the internet pioneer. But after he got his master's degree, he decided to coach which sport? His uh, athletic love, hoops, basketball. There you go. Perfect. Good Very job, good. Mitchell. Hang on a second. We'll send you back to Andrew. Thank he you. will take your information, and we'll send you out the prize. It's uh, Tech Talk Radio that you're listening to on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Whoa. Still Today we're going to talk about. Still haven't addressed the, rule. the door. Of formative expectations. Okay. Is that door, door completely closed now? It is. We make sure the it. airlock has been engaged. Yes. Yes. Very good. How could so you not tell all, the door We've was all closed? heard about this rule of formative expectations. For instance, in the early days of Microsoft, Bill Gates 
was notoriously tough on employees. He would memorize license plates so he could tell who was still at work. <laughs> he made a habit of sending sick. 2 a.m. emails, starting with the phrase, this is the stupidest piece of code ever written. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, Steve Jobs could even be a tougher boss. According to one employee, Steve Jobs, like Napoleon, had two faces. On one side, he was a brilliant genius and a true myth misfit. On the other side, his lack of care and sensitivity of your people, his disrespect, and his dictatorial behavior were all real. <laughs> And then there's Vince Lombardi, the Pro Football Hall of Fame coach, for whom the Super Bowl trophy is named. Uh, according to Jerry Kramer, uh, a, a Hall of Fame lineman, Lombardi would shout, would bully, he would drive us. He underpaid us and he refused to spoil us. Henry Jordan, another Hall of Famer famously said, he treats us all the same, like dogs. So these three guys, they were jerks at times. But then again, Gates built Microsoft, Jobs built Apple, and Lombardi built the Green Bay Packers and won five NSL cha NFL championships and the first two Super Bowls. And more importantly, the people that worked for them reflect fondly on the time they spent working with Jobs, Gates, and Lombardi. The experience taught them to prepare, to think critically, to work harder, to work smarter, to put teams ahead of themselves. So this illustrates the role of formidable, expe formidable expectations. It's really simple. You expect more. You demand more. But then you show gratitude when they actually deliver. And you, and you, de and you reward them for their effort, their dedication, and their loyalty. So it does work being a jerk at times, but you've got to balance it with appreciation. Yes. So there you go. The rule of of expectations, of formidable expectations. Um, although, you know, in today's workplace, it may not work that well. It may not work these days. <laughs> there I, would be some, uh, some probably some EEO complaints or HR complaints these days. I, I don't know if it would work today. I think you have to coat it with a big, big coating of sugar. I'm thinking so. Yeah. Let's okay. talk about this. I want to talk about the social media echo chamber. Yes. A bit and how to break out of it. See, one of the one of the ways that social media makes money, they they hypnotize you and they have you stay there because you see more stuff that you like. So every time you like something, the social media platform says, oh, he likes puppy dogs. And so then they start sending you more and more puppy dogs. And pretty soon <laughs> it looks like the entire world is populated with puppy dogs. <laughs> Or suppose you like some conspiracy theory relating to Trump. Uh, they say, oh, he likes Trump conspiracy theories. Pretty soon, the entire world, in their view, is filled with conspiracy theories against Trump or conspiracy theories against Obama. So your likes are used to feed you more and more and more of what you like to see or what you respond to. And you then are enmeshed in your own echo chamber. So these algorithms focus on what we like, what we retweet, and what we share. Hmm. And they feed us more and more of the same thing. And so we end up having what's called confirmation bias. Okay, we believe something, whether it's true or not, 
But essentially, if we see enough examples of what the very thing we believe, then we think it's truth. And this echo chamber has tended to divide society. Now, now the scientific method, now we try to get out of this, out of this tendency to go with our pre-existing beliefs. We try to, we have many methods to get out of that uh, trap of pre-existing beliefs. One is the scientific method where you have to gather data and you can't have a conclusion until the data is all in. The legal system is designed to overcome pre-existing beliefs. Our, our judicial processes are all inventions that humans have created to get around our tendency to jump to conclusions. Well, social media has none of those safeguards. Now, here are five things that you can do to fight back this echo chamber. The first thing you can do is like everything. <laughs> don't let them know what don't let them know what you truly like. Just like everything. How about if you like nothing? Does that work on the flip side? You could like nothing too. Give them no clues as as to what you're really thinking. And then you want to follow if you and they also look at who you're following. So what you should try to do is follow different news services that actually have conflicting views as well as same views. So they can't tell from who you follow what you're really thinking. And, and then also, when you're going to follow anybody, pay attention to the number of followers that they have. The people who don't follow anyone else but have a lot of people following them are probably not worth following mm. because they have an outsized influence in social media. So you want to get somebody who follows a lot of other people before you follow them. Now, the other thing you can do to change your feed, you can configure your feed to focus on recency rather than personalization. You can, this is a selection on your feed. So, because if you do personalization, they'll start picking things that you tend to like, even if they occurred five years ago or four years ago. But if you focus on recency, at least you'll get the latest things that are happening without being filtered by personalization. Now, both Facebook and Twitter allow you to view the most recent posts first. That's actually a pretty good thing. And finally, you should create some space for these new ideas. Maybe you should unfollow some of the people you're following or mute them out so you don't have to do that. Well, listen, best of luck getting out of your social media buddy, a bubble. <laughs> we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And go to the Stratford University website, check out the programs, and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online. <laughs>